Greetings and welcome to Gumbo the Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Gary, and thank you so much for being here today. Gumbo the Podcast highlights Africa and its many manifestations from the perspective of African people globally. Focusing on culture and history, its purpose is to educate, empower, connect, and to ultimately liberate the African diaspora. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the history and implications of the Arab slave trade on African people and culture. And we're joined today by three amazing guests, those guests being Dr. Tristan Samuels, Dr. Saharka Ade, and Professor Tariq Richardson. Professor Tristan Samuels received his honors BA major and minor in history in European classical studies from York University in Toronto, Canada. He earned his MA in Egyptology at the University of Toronto and his doctorate in Africology at Temple University. His primary research interests are in Afro-Caribbean languages, Nile Valley civilizations, and Afrocentric theory. His dissertation research focused on examining comedic texts from a Jamaican perspective. Dr. Taharka Ade is a native of Mount Vernon, Alabama. He received a BA in history with a minor in African-American studies from Alabama State and an MA and PhD in Africology from Temple University. His research interests are wide ranging, but include African and African-American history, Afrocentricity, Pan-Africanism, and Afrofuturism. He's actively engaged in several research projects for publication and is also the founder of an online print and video journal as well as a social media outlet called The Africologist. Saharka is currently a professor in the Department of Africana Studies at San Diego State University. We also are joined by Professor Tariq Richardson, who is currently a PhD candidate in the Department of Africology at, Af- excuse me, at Temple University. I almost said at Africology University. <laughs> you know, sort of that anyway, right? And Tariq Richardson is the editor-in-chief of the MOTEP Journal, the graduate a graduate teaching assistant, an instructor, and the spokesperson for the graduate students in the Department of Africology. Since moving to Philadelphia, he has continued to balance his academic studies and his engagement in community organizing. His research interests include Afrocentric theory, historiography, and research methodology. I'm so excited, excited, excited to have y'all here um, to be discussing this topic with y'all, but just to be talking to y'all in general has been so long (laughs) since I've seen you. So thank you so much um, for being on the call today. And so I want to go ahead and jump into the conversation. So like I mentioned before, we'll be discussing and looking at the Arab slave trade and its history. What is it? What are its implications and how has it, you know, impacted um, African people both here in the, the United States, but also in other parts of the world, particularly on the continent of Africa? So can somebody just kind of start us off and tell us what the Arab slave trade is? I think some of our listeners may not even be aware that that existed or does exist. Yeah, I can I can jump in. So um, Hotep, my name is Tariq. Um, So the. The Arab enslavement of African people is uh, we we talk about the Ma'afa, right? Uh, Marine Bani brings brings up that term in her text, Let the Circle Being Broken. Uh, it comes from the Swahili word meaning the, the great disaster, the catastrophe. And usually when we think about the enslavement of African people, we think about it at the hands of Europeans. But a, a lot of us don't recognize that the enslavement of African people um, as an institution first happened on the East African coast and then also in West Africa, um, by the hands of 
of uh, Asian cultures, and namely uh, Arabs and Persians. So uh, the Arab enslavement of African people, we can trace this history back to a war that happened between Christian Nubian kingdoms. Uh, these are people in Sudan, modern day Sudan, um, and a war against uh, the emerging Arab empire, the Rashid Caliphate. Um, and at the end of this, this bloody conflict, uh, an agreement was signed where the Nubian states agreed that every year they would give a certain amount of African people as, you know, as tribute. Mm. Um, since then, and so this is, we're looking at the eighth century, uh, but since then, uh, the, this enterprise expanded and would engulf most of the East African coast, uh, changing social dynamics, uh, changing the way that African people interacted with each other, with the, the global world. And this is something that didn't just affect uh, East African people, but this is something that affected the entire Indian Ocean world. Uh, mm -hmm. But there, there's a lot that we, we could say about this, but, and I know my, uh, my colleagues uh, have, you know, words they would like to share as well. But that's, that's kind of an overview, you know, and this history, it goes back. Uh, you know, we, we can look at the European one, you know, around 1492, right, the Battle of Granada. But this goes back to the 8th century or to the early 7th century. Wow, wow, wow. Thank you for that. And and it's so interesting because I, I, I was thinking about this a few um, months ago. And originally I wasn't going to cover this because the show more so focuses on our actual culture and history but then i thought about it i was like no we need to talk about how it's maybe influenced the culture or you know for for reasons that are not very positive um but also i started thinking about it a lot when there was this uh campaign against uh, stopping asian hate which i do think that's a, a very valid thing i don't think that anybody should be discriminated against regardless of where they're from but it made me think about the contradictions in that campaign and the in the failure of Asian people, you know, people who come from the continent of Asia, because I know that's a very uh, generic term, but and and how they have really, um, uh, in a sense, terrorized African people for centuries. And in this country, not necessarily to that extent. Right. But in the world, this has happened and it's really not been talked about enough. Right. And so I, I didn't want to bring this up during that time because I didn't want to interrupt a, a, to me a very important conversation about how you know other groups of people are targeted in this country besides black people but it is important to talk about how a lot of these groups who are also oppressed under racism and the ideology of white supremacy have also oppressed black people right you know have system, system excuse me systemically right targeted african people around the world um and, and to, to what can also be considered a form of racism. So I, I'm glad that you kind of brought that, that to light. And did um, any of our other two guests want to kind of chime in on what that, what that means about um, the overall kind of history of this, this trade? And it really, you know, may not even be considered a trade, right? But this, this circumstance. Hey, I, Hotep, this is Professor Tristan Samuels. Wait, can I be heard? Yes, we can hear you. Okay, okay good, I'm clear. All right. What, what I would <laughs> add to, because um, I think Brother Tariq really summed it up really well, 
But what I would add in terms of how the dynamics of African societies changed in the continent, um, when people think of North Africa, normally you don't think of black people. And that's because of the Arab slave trade, because what came with that, with Arab enslavement system, sorry, what came with that is the establishment of Arab settler colonial states in North Africa. Most notable among these is Egypt, right? Which or in Afrocentric terms, we could probably call Occupy Kemet. <laughs> that's a whole other thing, but, but that's very important because that's why in North Africa is usually not associated with being African is because of Arab settler colonialism. Oh, that's such an excellent point. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that to, to light. And with my students, I often try to break that down to them. I'm like, just, I mean, it's like when people think of Northern Africa, they, like you said, they think of this really Arabized place and they don't realize that the indigenous people, the original people there were also African, just like any other part of the continent. And I try to make them understand it by comparing it to the United States. Like, okay, you wouldn't call a white American necessarily an, a Native American, right? Like, you understand that there's a distinct difference between those people who were probably here, you know, who had been here thousands of years before Europeans came. And that's a whole other conversation about when African people came here. But you wouldn't necessarily call those, you know, European who live here, Europeans who live here, Native Americans. Just like you wouldn't call these other people who've essentially been occupying that land as Africans, you know? So it's a very, um, very confusing thing when people are getting so much mis misinformation. And let me hear from um, Dr. Ade, because I know you have something to say. <laughs> well, uh, I could build on that just a bit uh, by saying that uh, it's very important to begin with uh, Dr. Samuels and Professor uh, Richardson uh, really summed it up very well. But I would just say that uh, when the Arabs came into Africa, there was very little resistance. And the reasons for that is because uh, there was already a, and when I say into Africa, I mean into North Africa, when they uh, made their uh, four-way into that area very little resistance because there was already a series of wars and, and other things occurring in that time period. Um, uh, you had the Achaemenid Empire, you had the Greeks, you had the Romans. And by the time the Arabs made their foray into North Africa, the North Africans were basically almost inviting them to, to, to some extent, some were. Uh, but it was only in to getting rid of their Roman problem, not to to stay and to occupy and become a problem themselves. It was it was this uh, this this uh, supposed assistance that was going to come with, um, and them coming into North Africa and, and helping them get away of uh, their their issues there. And so, um, so you know, this this is not a mystery how. Uh, the people, the culture, and the religion made its way into the continent in order to uh, instill uh, what has happened since then. Mm, very interesting. Did anybody want to add on to that? Because I have a couple of points that I want to bring up that were illuminated through y'all's um, sharing. One thing. Uh, so uh, Dr. Aday does a, did a good job demonstrating you know, the nuances in this relationship. And it reminds me of how later on, because he, he's talking about 
you know, in the very, what we could call the medieval period. But how the Omani Arabs colonized much of East Africa was actually through similar circumstances. You know, African people calling upon uh, their supposed allies to get rid of the Portuguese, right, who were trying to colonize them. So, so even though we're looking at these uh, ancient phenomena, a lot of the times, not that history repeats itself, but we start to see certain patterns emerge. Right. Um, so as he was speaking, I just started to think about this, this other history that um, is quite parallel to, to what Ade had just said. And I think that's a good point about the patterns, right? Because I, you know, I often, you know, not that I don't think it's important to watch the news, <laughs> right? It, it's nice to know what's going on, but I'm also not really surprised at so many things I hear um, because I understand these patterns, right? These, when you understand the way these, these different cultures work and how they have worked, nothing really kind of shocks you. I mean, you know, you're just like, well, that's what they've been doing, right? Um but that's a side note. So I want to talk a little bit. There's so many things we, we can discuss with this. Um, but why is this important? Like, why is it important to even be having this discussion? How has it, you know, impacted African people on the continent? You know, how has it impacted African people in the diaspora, you know, living here in the United States and other places? And the reason why I'm asking that is because I think there's very little attention and very little, maybe potentially known about the things that y'all mentioned. I can I can literally see listeners looking like, wow, you know, hearing this and being like, wow, I never knew that. I never thought of that. Right. Um, so why is it important for this discussion to happen? Um, mm-hmm. Well, well, one thing, you know, even though we could say a lot of these systems might be archaic, which that's debatable. As we know, uh, many African people are still being exploited uh, for their physical labor in the Middle East and in the Mediterranean areas. Um, Mm -hmm. But beyond that, the sentiments that facilitated this enterprise, this oppressive enterprise of enslavement, uh, many of these sentiments still exist today, right? Uh, We only need to look at what is going on in Sudan to see the results of that, right? Why is North Sudan at conflict, or why is Sudan at conflict with South Sudan? Or why is it that Black people in Sudan are treated as second-class citizens? You know, before we began recording, we were talking about um, how people are conceptualized with Sudan. There's an article um, that came out last year, right? And it's called Viewpoint from Sudan, where Black people are are called slaves, right? So Mm -hmm. this legacy is still uh, around today. You know, my research focuses on the Swahili coast in Tanzania and Zanzibar. And if you look at the politics, right, especially the politics of Zanzibar and how it relates to the rest of Tanzania, you still have uh, some of these sentiments manifesting themselves politically. And then if you want to take it to the diaspora, uh, a lot of us have um, an understanding of African history, but you know, perhaps that understanding of African history isn't as well informed as we think it is. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's that's why I would you know approach this kind of conversation with great importance is looking at these political ramifications from these archaic, oppressive foreign systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and you brought up a good point about how this is still happening. I had a a student, um, I don't know, this probably was 
had to be in just 2019, actually. And um, he told me, and I want—I don't want to say, I think where he was, I don't want to say where he was from, because I'm not exactly sure, but he was definitely from the Middle East. And he, you know, spent the first, he was like a teenager. Um, he spent the first half of his life there. And he said that his grandfather still enslaved Black people and was very brutal to them, you know. And, and I think that a lot of us think that, um, if this maybe happened in the past, that it was just the past and that it's not existing uh, anymore. But it's still very, very prevalent. Um, very, very prevalent. Um, what's the name of that film? I think it's called I Am Slave. Um, or is it called Slave? And, you know, I don't necessarily like the terminology, right? But the the film is talking about a woman from Sudan who's kidnapped by people from the northern part. I think this is before Sudan becomes Sudan and South Sudan. And she's kidnapped and she's enslaved, you know, by these Arabic um, Sudanese people, you know, people who are, you know, from Sudan, but they're Arabic. And she's a dark skinned African woman and she's enslaved by them, you know. So and that was common. And, and that this was in the early 2000s. This is a true story. You know, so it's not not only did it predate this European, um, you know, system, but it still is happening in different ways. And um, I think sometimes it may be more of a complicated conversation because of the nuances that were mentioned, but also because in our United States context or us living here in the United States, a lot of times people of color you know, people that are Arabic are considered other people of color and we don't associate those that level of, you know, violence maybe or racism with other people of color. You're like, oh, there's colorism or maybe there's some prejudice, but this being enslaved by these people who are, you know, not even at the top of this country, you know, in terms of the way it's structured, I think it's something that's hard for people to wrap their minds around sometimes. Mm. The importance of the history of this is that um, history tells of people where they have been. It also tells of people where they still must go and what they still must be. In fact, Dr. Clark says that the relationship of the history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. Mm. So when we're looking at our history, when, when African-Americans and people of the African world, people on the African continent, looking at the history, you have to understand that two, 300 years, 400 years of uh, this current world system of, you know, Eurasian domination is, is very short period on the map of human history, mm -hmm. right? And so, uh, as Kwame Ture said, if, if you begin your history in slavery, that would only make you a good slave. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that, and it's very important that you're dealing with the Arab slave trade, understanding that even prior to the European trade, there was the uh, trade where in which Arabs and Europeans help assisted each other, then that's, that's a whole other thing. It's, it, uh, it goes into the history that uh, Professor Richardson was talking about with the Omani Arabs 
and the Portuguese in Zanzibar and in Stonetown, right? Mm -hmm. um, but even before that, you know, you had Arab uh, traders coming into the continent. Uh, the Somali, modern day Somali had a huge port, um, but bringing people as far as uh, Japan even. I know on Netflix recently, there was a very popular um, animation, uh, uh, Yazuki. Um, and that was in that was in the 16th century that that occurred. Uh, but China, Japan and, and other areas. So, you know, this trade happened and it happened over a period of uh, uh, millennia. Um, and even millennia before that, there were small instances of a trade occurring. But at the same time, you had uh, African history occurring, mm -hmm. just as it's occurring now. It occurred during the the uh, the period of enslavement and the period of the slave trade. Uh, however, uh, it's important to understand that you can't bifurcate these notions of African history and the slave trade, right? Mm -hmm. You you have to look at it. All of this is occurring um simultaneously mm -hmm. so uh understanding it from that point of view is i feel very vital oh that's an excellent point thank you for bringing that up um did anybody want to add on to that um i do um mm -hmm. i think because something you said or something to what um professor Ade, i know he invoked um great um dr john henry clark i think when it comes to that question of, I guess, non-Black persons of color, to use the term. Um, I think of what he said about Africa has no friends. Hmm. I think that's what looking at the relate the interactions that African people have had with non-African people, when you have that historical background, hmm. or sometimes a direct experience, it kind of puts things in perspective. So I think that's a very important point, um, that, that commentary, and I think history um, reflects that point. So I, I want to emphasize that part. Yeah, that's a really good, thank you for, for you know, lifting that up. That's an excellent point. Um, I think, you know, as a collective, as a people, we definitely have to have a a wider understanding of, of our history, you know, of of the things that we've contributed to this world, many things, but also of all the things that have, you know, have taken place that have impacted us. So I think a lot of us just really have, if we do have a, a very under, a good understanding of history, it's more so just more localized. So this is, I'm glad we're having this conversation. And I want to talk about um, why were African people enslaved by Arabic people? We talked about uh, you know, a little bit about when it happened and and maybe how it happened, but why? Why African people, um, of all people, were other groups enslaved by the Arabs? Can, you know, someone speak towards that that aspect? Well, I could say that, um, yes, other groups were enslaved. You have what's called Barbary slavery, um, where you had, even in North Africa, uh, uh, Europeans and, and other uh, non-African groups were, were brought there. And there's, there's people, especially people who uh, found freedom, uh, wrote their narratives, some who didn't even, but wrote their narratives about their experiences being enslaved. 
uh, John Blassingame, he does a very important chapter on this in the first chapter, I believe, in his book, Unity. And uh, Blassingame was very clear to say that uh, that this notion of, uh, just as an aside, that this notion of uh, a people adopting an inferiority complex, mm. uh, which some, I argue, only some perhaps um, enslaved Africans did, and that's a whole other conversation. But this notion mm-hmm. we'll is, get into is that, not mm-hmm. right. This notion is not exclusive to African people. That uh, that that the Europeans who were enslaved by Arabs during that period, uh, they too in uh, uh, gained some form of an inferiority complex and believed that. Islam and Arabic culture was superior to the cultures that they had come from. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think it's important though to remember in in saying that 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 the European and Arab enterprise in this are very similar, mm-hmm. and and their intention uh, was always and is always to come to power, right? Mm-hmm. And um, when the Arabs invaded. Um, it was at a time that uh, when slavery had been made uh, a huge business at that part of the world, you had the Byzantine Empire and the Sassanian Sassanian Empire or the uh, Iranians or the Nouveau Persians, maybe you can call them. Um, In the sixth century, they had made slave trading into a major enterprise. So, uh, the Arabs who did not come about until the seventh century AD, um, or at least you could say Islam didn't come about into mm-hmm. that time. You can make arguments for uh, various aspects of Arab culture. Um, but uh, they were themselves willing to be, in order to gain, uh, to, to put themselves in the midst of um, that trading empire. And so the choice of African people, I believe just became a convenient choice over time uh, due to uh, the the politics of the time, if, if, if there were. Mm. And, and also um, go, going off of that, um, within Islam, you weren't able to enslave other Muslim people, right? Mm-hmm. That's the excellent so, point, yeah. So that's why we see the Ottoman Empire, for example, they they enslaved everybody. You know, they went after African people, other Asian people, the Serbs, anyone they could get their hands on. They mm-hmm. actually had entire uh, army regiments made out of uh, Janissaries or uh, Christians, or they would get uh, Christian boys and, and make them eunuchs to fight for right. them. Mm-hmm. Um, or to serve in their courts. So, you know, like they saying, this is a, a large institution. Um, but in Africa, what you would have is, like I said before, you couldn't enslave another African person. So what does that mean? It means that many African societies would convert to Islam so that they would no longer be targets of jihads. And Ibn Battuta, he was um, a Islamic traveler explorer mm-hmm. he would travel to uh places like kiowa and, and kenya and other parts along the swahili coast 
and he would praise them about their yearly jihads against the non-believers, right? And they would launch these uh, wars of aggression against African people who practice African spirituality mm-hmm. uh, because they weren't protected by this theology. So they would go and they would attack these people and they would take them and sell them across the world. Um, and you see many African societies, especially in West Africa, nominally just take the religion, right? Uh, so they can have access to these trade networks. But uh, there's a lot to be said about the political nuance in, in this, right? Um, and it has a lot to do with religion. I think we've talked about religion a few times, um, but also has a lot to do with international politics. That's You brought some great points, and it makes me think about um, this impact on um, African people culturally. Um, you brought up kind of some of those nuances and I think it's 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 it goes back to the point of it being more although different types of people were you know targeted but it wasn't just an attack on um it wasn't just an attack on black people in general or like African people in general but also on that culture and the culture um that they possessed you know and 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 really the you can see those implications today where you have many um, people who are um, who may practice not all people, but some people who practice Islam who are you know African, who actually value the um, Arab culture or Islam over being African or you know being a, a black person. I actually saw something, um, you know, I, I can't remember who actually somebody brought this up when I was living in Philly and was mentioning how you know some. Because I think Philly has one of the largest black populations of Muslims in the country. And, you know, people brought up how there's this awareness of blackness and there's this black pride. But there's also like there's this competing, you know, pride with wanting to be associated with, um, you know, basically being an Arab, you know, that being a higher standard, because that is what's illuminated in that religion. That's where it comes from. So I want to kind of circle back to a few points. And the first one with that being what was mentioned before about the eunuchs and uh, the Ottoman Empire, which is now Turkey, the country of Turkey. Um, when I was actually there, I was astounded at the level of racism, particularly towards me as a black woman. Like, I, don't, I didn't really see the interactions with them the people from Turkey with black men. So I can't speak on that. But as a black woman, I was, I was baffled. Um, I was told I was, you know, literally sexually harassed. I don't know if some of y'all know this story um, in a bazaar there um, when there was markets. And I was, I mean, constantly told really disgusting things in the streets. You know, I'm not going to even repeat it here, but like really nasty things that you only like you would, I mean, it's like coming out of a movie or something. It was so disgusting. And they feel comfortable to tell me stuff like, I mean, maybe I should say, so you understand that the, the, how drastic it is and it's trigger warning for anybody, um, but for some people, but, you know, saying things like, I want to eat your black pee, right? Like yelling that in the streets at me. And I'm, and I'm, and I was baffled because I'm like, you're not doing this to the white women, right? You're not talking to them in this way. Um, you're not approaching them in this way, right? 
but you're doing that to me as a black woman. And, you know, I remember before going to Turkey and we were in the city, we were in Istanbul. I remember before going there, um, uh, we were told to wear certain kind of attire to respect Islam. Right. So basically having our shoulders covered and wearing dresses or things that covered our legs. And I and I did all that. Right. So I'm thinking like, OK, I'm gonna do this. I went into the mosque. I, you know, I, I respected that. I put I covered my hair. I was very respectful of their culture. And yet, I was still subjected to that foolishness over all the other women, right? So, and uh, there was another black lady with a black, we were students, we were in college. So there's another black uh, young lady with me, but she was biracial and she looked very, you know, like she could have really blended in with the Turkish people. So I very much so stood out as a dark-skinned black woman. And um, it really occurred to me during that trip so well, something that had never really occurred to me before was that there is a deep, you know, hate <laughs> of the black woman and of of black people. And I'm not saying that all of the people have that, but there's something ingrained in them culturally to where they thought that that was okay. Um, and I think it goes back to this history of being anti-black in the first place, right? But also coming from these patriarchal structures that don't really respect women. And of course don't respect black women in many cases when, especially if you go back to ancient times where there was so much uh, matriarchy on the continent of Africa, right. And black women, you know, leading off, you know, political and military efforts, but, you know, also going back to the time of these eunuchs, a lot of them being African men, right. Um, And being castrated um, in order to protect these harem harems that were in the Ottoman Empire, but also black women representing the, you know, sex slaves, you know, being uh, equated to that in their eyes. So it was just very, very eye opening, um, very eye opening experience for me. Does anybody want to speak to that in terms of the role that um, this has played, but also in terms of other, you know, maybe cultural implications? I know we talked briefly before we got online about um how that's impacted our respect for our own religions and cultures. Well, I have a comment. Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe two. <laughs> I said okay. That. Yeah. No, it's not. It's going to be two. Well, one because I think this ties into your previous question about why you know Eurasians. In this case, we're dealing with Sand Eurasians, aka Arabs. So with them, it's they. I I, I have to refer to Sheikh Anta Jobs. Theory of two cradles. I know that wasn't yes. the term he used. No, but this is but, this is important. Yeah. But when he talked about the difference essentially between African culture and Eurasian culture, this is where because you know Europe and Asia, it's more of a social divide. It's not a actual hardcore um, geographic division. But so in this case, Eurasian is you know important. So the Eurasians coming out of the northern cradle in a hostile physical environment um, developed. Of an attitude of what um, Jacob Carruthers kind of, you know, taking the two grail theory in a different direction, developed into a personality of fundamental alienation, right? Where people, or in their conceptualization, man is at war with nature. So it's a battle for control of man versus nature. Whereas in African culture, the Southern cradle in, in Jopian terms is harmonization um, complementarity is is the basis or fundamental interrelation. 
So that's the cultural ethos that developed out of their environment. Because you take Arabs or Europeans out of their physical environment, bring them to Africa, they still do the same thing. That's because that's become now um, a model behavior. In fact, um, our ancestors in Kemet, um, there's a text, um, the history of Mary Carre, the story of Mary Carre, where he says, beware of the so-called Asiatic, we would know as the Arab in this context, because he is wretched because of the place that he's in. So our ancestors were kind of onto these kind of people. So it goes back to um, what Brother Tariq alluded to earlier about patterns in history. So I think that part's important. And then to the second part, um, the sexual dynamics, I think, um, you know, with, with male, it's it's very similar as we would expect to the pale Eurasians, but with the sand Eurasians, you see that same sexual fetishism of African people. Like it, the story you told me is very similar to what I hear um, African women saying about Italy or Spain. Yes. Right. Very. Sim- yes. It's just like that. But actually, I feel like worse to a certain extent. Yeah. Like the the angle of it, and I've I've seen this directly actually. Um, in, where sometimes even the African people don't even recognize the Arab mm-hmm. fetishism. I've unfortunately seen that directly. And whoo, but um, that's a fetish for sure. This, mm-hmm. this need to castrate um, black males, right? This is you know, not too different from Eurasians because again, this, you have to think about the population factors and guarding their women from African men. But of course they want access to whatever women they want, right? Mm-hmm. So that's where you get into, you know, that, control of women which in their perspective is below man right and also control of that which is not even in their culture right Right. that doesn't mean arab women aren't um problematic i want to be very clear because there's a good um, african proverb if a leopard is chasing you you don't ask if it's male or female so i want to be clear on that so I, i give that context so definitely we have to look at the cultural ethos that's developed in sand and pale Eurasians alike. And then also, you know, how that manifests in sexual dynamics. Yeah, excellent point, excellent point. Thank you for that. Okay, um, what about you, Dr. Ade? Uh, the only thing I would say is that uh, I think we're, we're all kind of summing up with, with, even with the sexual dynamic is this relates back to power notions of, of power mm-hmm. uh uh the it, it I mean that's what imperialism is you know to have the power culturally religiously and 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 physically over uh other people and uh so you're still essentially looked at as uh a slave as you were five, 600 years ago, that they have some amount of, uh, rather if it's um, uh, subconscious or not, notion of, of power over you when you were walking through those streets right. and you were being called those awful things. It's, it's, they felt they have the power to do that. And, and a certain type of power over you even to be able to do that because it's still all about keeping African people um, and, 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 and various other uh, groups who are not within their domain, but African people specifically under, in, their, in their place and under their thumb. Um, yeah. And you, you know, this is done this day, if not so much in a physical um, fashion, it's done um, psychologically. 
Yeah, thank you for that. And I and I'm and I'm and I appreciate those thoughts. And I want to talk a little bit about because there's so much, there's so many ways to go with this conversation. But I want to talk about um, an interesting topic I've heard um, from a number of people, primarily people who are uh, Muslim and Arabic, uh, both who are both. And uh, many of them have argued that the things that are happening um, or the things that happened with this um, enslavement were as a result of Arab culture, not of Islam, right? That Islam as the religion is not responsible for the behavior of of people who just so happen to be Arabic and are doing things like this, right? So, I mean, that's, I want to know, I think Tariq, Tariq, can you hear us okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm back in. Can you hear me? Oh, good. We can hear you. So I was going to say, would you like to speak to that too? Because I think that's, that's a very, uh, I've, I've literally gotten into debates with people about this, um, this fact, this fact. And many people use um, the black man, Bilal, who, you know, that story of Bilal, who apparently, um, well, I'll let, I'll let Tariq speak on it. <laughs> well, so, um, you know, it goes back to the point I, I was trying to make, but I think I got cut off. Uh, Job talks about this idea of Eurasia being part of a patriarchal paradigm, right? And mm-hmm. Africa is being part of what we could call a matriarchal paradigm. I, I don't quite think that the the term matriarchy best describes how African cultures work. Right. But the idea that I want to reinforce is this idea of cultural paradigm. A paradigm is all of these different things that, you know, we could say make up the parameters of what the culture is, like the ethics and whatnot. And so when you look at Islam, what you're what they're saying, right? They're like, well, Islam's not to blame. It's the Arabs, right? That could be true, right? But where does the religion come from? Exactly. Right? Who right. created it? What culture is it informed by? When you look at Islam, it doesn't matter if you're a Sunni, if you're Shia, if you're Ibadi, uh, it's it's always an Arab-centric religion, right? Well, just as uh, uh, Dr. Ben uh, Yosef said, any rel- religion is uh, the deification of one's own culture. Exactly. Um, and so when you look at Islam, I think Islam, it, it, for this point, it's, it's quite easy. You look at what is the holy city? The holy city is in Arabia. Right. Right. When you read the Quran, what is the proper and most uh, holy language you can read it in? It's Arabic. Who are the holy people? Right. It's the Quraysh tribe of Arab people. Right. And so there's a few differences. Right. The bodies, they they think uh, the bodies, that's the the main sect in East Africa or at least in Tanzania. Uh, They said, oh, you don't need to be. Um, from the Quraysh tribe to be the leader of the Islamic world, to be the caliph, but it would be better, right? And this kind of goes to what you said, how, um, and I think this also goes into what's happening here in the United States, is mm-hmm. people, they're, they're interested in this religion, right? They're, they're, maybe they're interested in the piety or the, or the regimen or, you know, how, um, or how, just the culture around it. But, when they want to learn more about their religion and they want to become more orthodox and more proper, they have to go back 
to Arab culture to be informed on how to do that. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So I, I've noticed a, a trend, especially here in the city of Philadelphia. Um, many people are leaving different interpretations of the Islamic faith, such as you know the Nation of Islam or or the Mord Science Temple, and are adopting more orthodox forms of the religion. So now we see a lot of people uh, dressing in, you know, not, I wouldn't say, you know, Islamic clothes, because there is no such thing as Islamic clothes. They're Arab clothes. Exactly. Right? So, you know, there is no such thing as Islamic language. It's Arabic language. So, you know, it's part, it's situated, it's informed by the culture of the people who created it. The only way to truly be African, right, you know, to, to really find a religion, I should say, or a spiritual practice that fully aligns with your African self is to do that of an African spirituality, right? Whenever you attempt to, you know, find yourself in another religion, you, you probably can find stuff and find things that, you, that resonate with you, right, and, and make things fit, right? But you're going to have to make them do those things, they're not going to do those things on their own because they don't come from us, right? They don't come from our, our culture. And that's so important. I, I talk, you know, like I said before, I, I truly, I grew up in the black church. I grew up, actually, I was raised Catholic and I had, I had amazing experiences. I don't have any, I, I literally could not tell you about a negative, like individual experience that I had at, 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 a, at the black Catholic church I was raised and everybody was extremely loving, supportive. And I really do believe that they were a village who helped me to get where I was at, but I'm not Catholic anymore because I realized that in order for me to be truly authentic to who I am as an African woman, I cannot engage in that religion. I understand that it wasn't created for me, for my people, and it doesn't actually benefit us. And this is not even considering the hundreds of years of oppression. Like say, say that that even say there was never, um, enslavement of African people by Christians. Say that never happened, right? If you, even if you take that away, it still wouldn't be a fit because of those cultural uh, matrices, matrices that it comes from. Um, and I, have to, I had to really, it took me a while to really come to terms with that. It's, it's not an easy conversation. And it's not something that I just, you know, broadcast because I never want to, you know, offend the people that are around me that, you know, believe in that still. Because, I, you know, I respect um, what the, the black church has done, but I understand there are many shortcomings and they're always, it's always going to be that way because it doesn't come from us. And the same thing, I think many black Americans, um, especially Africans living in this country have an issue with coming to terms with some of them are able to come to terms with the Christianity thing because it's right there. Like they're like, well, we know our ancestors were enslaved by these people. We know that the Bible was used to justify it. Right. And, and some of them can, grasp that right but when you start talking about islam sometimes i feel like people can't fully understand it because they don't see the you know islam didn't do those things necessarily to that extent in this country right they have to go back in time and or even go to a different part of the world to understand its implications um and i think i told y'all before i was you know having a conversation with a, a friend of mine i had who was um in the nation of islam and you know, the same reason I was like, I respect the nation of Islam and the things that it's done for the black community. But, you know, there's always going to be that missing link because of the fact that it's a really trying to um, create this whole 
other situation, another culture. I mean, I don't even want to get into all the, the, the kind of the, the philosophy of the NOI, but you know, it, he had a hard time understanding that what Christians did to black Americans, Arabs had done that because they, they, they were associating themselves with being of those people calling themselves Asiatic, you know, Oh, I'm an Asiatic black man. I'm like, wait, how does that work? <laughs> right. How does that, how does that work? So I think it's very important. Um, to mention these things because I think many black Americans, especially in the sixties and seventies found Islam as a better option. And, and maybe it was, maybe it was a better option. Um, especially the Islam, the NOI that was being led by Malcolm X, a better alternative to, you know, worshiping a white Jesus. Now I, I will say growing up, I didn't, we never prayed to white Jesus in my church. Everything was black. We had a black Jesus. We had Kente cloth in the edifice. There were engravings of Sankofa uh, uh, and other uh, Sankofa and other Adinkra symbols. I mean, it was very much so what you consider like, a, I mean, it's, most people can't wrap their mind around it because it doesn't even, there's, it's so contradictory when you really know better, but it, it, it helped me to not worship whiteness, right? Because I never grew up praying to a white thing. So I think in that for that reason, you know, the Nation of Islam was very beneficial to understanding we can't pray to somebody and worship this being that is not like us, right? But at the same time, there's still these these inklings of wanting to be non-black, not wanting to be an African person, right? Um, to that you know point, you say, I mean, oh, sorry. No, you're fine. I, I was just going to say, when you say it's contradictory, uh, you're correct. It's contradictory, and in one sense, it is somewhat African. And, and I would say that because African people have always historically had an intrigue in not only, you know, of course, what other Africans had to offer culturally, but, you know, what other people were who were not African uh, culturally were doing. And in a lot of, most of the time when this entry comes about for people or cultures outside the continent, it would lead to our detriment. Mm -hmm. And and so what you're talking about with the churches you grew up in, I think of um, the Congo Kingdom, Right. right, exactly. Um, That's great. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think of uh, I think of Aksum, right? right. And so, which uh, is you know Ethiopia for those. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I I will say if I can uh, just real quickly uh, or as quickly as I can make it, uh, religion. When we when we think of religion, the, uh, these these Abrahamic religions, Judaism, mm -hmm. Christianity, Islam. When made state religions, and when I said when I say when made state religions, I mean that, uh, as someone noted before, religion is nothing more than the the deification of your culture, right? But then, uh, a certain group within that culture, perhaps, or some outside of that culture, as with Christianity, will take a religion and make it an imperial tool, an imperial mm -hmm. weapon, right? And Judaism, Christianity, and Islam have all had their hand in that. And so when you have uh, uh, Judaism, a lot of people don't know that most of Arabia, modern day Arabia, what we call Arabia today, at one time was under the influence of Judaism. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and this is prior to this Islam, of course. 
but Western Arabia, uh, Arabia was under the influence uh, of Christianity by way of Aksum, by way of Ethiopia, right? And so this, this, uh, this kind of mixture that's, or this, this confluence that was going on at the same time, it kind of creates the atmosphere for Islam to be birthed because you have the, the Roman Empire, which was on its last legs at this time, the Vandals hit Rome in 455 and sacked the city. Um, and, you know, Roman Empire, of course, was at that time synonymous with Christianity or Christendom, right? Uh, and then you had uh, uh, Aksum, which had only taken on the religion for political means. And if you look at right. any of the uh, historical documents, you will see this was a wholly political enterprise because they wanted to be uh, 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 to have some um, stake in the trade in the Mediterranean mm -hmm. right so you see that Christianity is not owning up to itself Judaism is not owning up to itself at, the, at this time and uh, pr uh, primarily because although uh, there was, you know, Judea had supposedly argued this lineage line between themselves and uh, I guess you can call them proto-Arabic kings. There was still a hierarchy going on, you know, and mm -hmm. and so you had, you know, this uh, this young trader, Muhammad, who sees this and sees an opportunity to use Christianity and Islam, I mean, Christianity and Judaism and, and parts of its of his own native culture to form this religion that is Islam. And almost immediately, it becomes one of uh, imperial uh, interests and imperial conquests. Right. So, it I was mean, the, associated with the Arab empire. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And its expansion. Mm -hmm. No, I'm adding on. Continue if there was more. I no, just was well, agreeing, yeah. I was just going to say that... Uh, uh, Richardson mentioned earlier that uh, uh, you have to, well, I'll just say when, when it comes to language, now the, these languages, um, when you look at the propagation of religion, but also language that comes along with it, I've heard uh, Dr. Samuels mention once that language is the vehicle of culture. Mm -hmm. And the people of these times, they understood this very well. Now, Arabic language is nothing more than a Semitic language. Mm -hmm. And it's related, actually, to the Canaanite languages, just like Hebrew and Aramaic. The Semitic languages, by the way, um, is the last and youngest of what the linguists call the six Afrasian languages, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's the only one to make it, its way outside of the African continent, which is why it's you know, it gives that Asian title to the Afrasian uh, that the, ling the Western linguists call it. But the Arabic language, its parent language is a baby sister, it's the younger of these five. And these five are not even the oldest of African languages. Right. Right, of the other five, are not the oldest of African language. So, and the, you know, the, the Benu Congo and the Khoisan languages, they're much older. Mm -hmm. So you see just how new on the world stage this thing called Islam and this language that is Arabic is. Now, someone mentioned earlier that there is no true Quran unless it is written in Arabic. Within, well, if 
there's no true Quran unless it's written in Arabic. And in order to practice Islam, you have to study and understand this Quran. Then yes, you're having uh, 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 conflicting cultural things going on if you say you're proud to be African, but you're also Muslim. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very, I mean, a very, when we talk about religion and spirituality, it's so touchy, you know, and it, because it's, it's what people consider to be their foundation. Um, if they are practicing and engaging in these, um, these religions and practices. And so, but it's so true. I mean, I'm just so glad you said that it's so true because you almost have to, in order to go deep enough, you have, you have to realize what you're giving up as an African person. And that goes with all of them, right? I don't know too many uh, people who are black Jews, but I do know of some, you know, the is, you know, the Israelites group and things like that. And you have to ask yourself about what you're giving up. Now, when I had this conversation um, I've had this conversation with, you know, Christians and, uh, and, and, and Muslims, but one of my good friends, she's Christian and she was saying, well, all those people are from all those places were in Africa anyway. Right. So she's saying that, and I hear this a lot, even when it comes to, um, black Muslims, um, from this country in particular, they'll say, well, you know, all of these places were technically in Africa places like if you look at the map you'll notice the proximity of you know uh egypt present day egypt or you know ancient kemet to um you know places like yemen <clears throat> uh places like saudi arabia right that are like right there and you know we do know about well i don't know if everybody's listening we know that, the, that there was a suez canal that really kind of impacted that um when it was built but, you know, you'll have people make that say, well, all these people were, were African people anyway, because that used to be a part of Africa. So when you hear people say that, because I'm sure y'all have heard that, what is your response I have a to simple this ge geographic, you know, justification? I have a very simple one, and I rarely have a simple response. <laughs> you do, my right? Thing, my thing is, in an area, given our confusion, we're all coming out of confusion, which most of people in these conversations agree with. <laughs> So let's pick the things, let's engage in the things that are least confusing. Voodoo is not confusing, you know it's African, right? Lukumi or Santeria, I might be wrong on one of them. We know that's African. One of them is the white one. What is the black? I might be off, someone can correct me. Or you can say Ifai, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's go to the systems that we know are African so that we don't have to debate it. Don't do something you have to debate. Mm. That's simple as that. Because if your point is it's African, then pick something. You should have no problem going with something that's not debatable. Mm. It's just Never a, looked at it like that. That's a good point. I would also, in terms of geography, uh, when people who try to make, you know, because they're looking on these little maps or globe, go to Egypt and see how long it takes you to walk to Syria or to walk to the Levant or, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. see how long it takes you to get to these places. These places... You know, you're talking about a, a, a time period where people barely traveled a mile outside of their homes, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and you're saying that, oh, because it's like, no, it, it's one, they're separated, one, uh, geographically by water. There's a little strip that's going from Egypt into, uh, uh, into Western Asia, but there's- Which clear, is why they needed a canal, right? 
Right, but there's clear cultural division um, that happens uh, historically. And then you do see historically uh, cultural associations and cult, but you can tell, you can see clearly in the writings of the people and even some of the oral histories that have been passed down, even from that long ago, mm-hmm. that they understood clear divisions between their 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 uh, the social and cultural divisions between each other. They understood it. Yep. Yep. So it's it's not enough to just say they were all black anyway, because it's more it's more than just color, right? Like, yeah some of those people probably were what we would consider black physically, you know, because of the, where they are located in the world. Right. But it's not about that. It's about the culture. What type of culture were these people practicing? What culture would allow for these types of beliefs to be spread? Right. Because these religions don't create racist thoughts. The, 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 the thoughts were already there, you know, um, and the religion is just there to justify some of these things that are already believed in mass by the people. So there's clearly cultural differences, right? And uh, of course, Tristan, you know, so thank you for that, Dr. Ardek, that's really spot on. But also, Tristan, you know, keep it plain and simple, right? It, you know, <laughs> uh, is Tariq here? Did you want to add anything, Dr. Richardson? Yeah, so... um I didn't know that your neighbors have to be exactly who you are. Mm. Especially when you look at North Africa or East Africa for that matter. Those are zones of international or yeah, international and inter-ethnic um, interaction. Mm-hmm. Right? So the people in North Africa are not like the people that live in Spain or Italy. Exactly. I was just They're say not that. like the people that live in the Middle East. And like Ade said, this is attested in even ancient times. Uh, in Kemet, ancient Egypt, uh, there's the Book of Gates where they show all the pictures of all the people around them. And they make a clear distinction between Asian people, which we would call like, you know, Middle Eastern people, and then African people, mm-hmm. right? Um, and there, there is cultural interaction, right? From ancient times, modern times presently um but that doesn't mean that your neighbors are you you know and and just because and i've I've seen people use this before they're like oh well black people are in the bible it's like okay (laughs) kush is mentioned right all these different things but like you said like what is the culture right and then when you look at um you know the the primary african individual in in both christianity and within Islam, you know, looking at uh, the Ethiopian eunuch and Balaam, what is their position? They're both enslaved, exactly. enslaved people, right? And then you look at w- what is actually Israel's, or not Israel's, but the, the Hebrews people relationship to, to African culture. And you see it's an aggressive relationship for maybe half of their, their interactions, right? Where ancient Egypt is depicted as you know this tyrannical evil empire right um like every now and then you, you might get the the kushites or the 
the the Nubians they come in and they 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 might be depicted a little better. And so within these stories, my point is, you have African people there, and they make a distinction of who these African people are. So you know, I going back to Doctor Ben, you know, he he made this point before, and I think it's it's more rhetorical and and it's funny because he's looking at like Moses. He's like, oh well, Moses was raised in in Egypt. So, and he, so culturally, he, he was an African. He was raised in the house of the Pharaoh. And it's like, okay, that's one way to look at it. But that's completely divorcing these traditions from their own cultural location. Right. And you and I'm so glad you brought up Moses. This is going to take us on a quick tangent, but I promise I'm going to bring it back. This is excellent. Thank you, um, Dr. Richardson, for that. Because I remember um, going back to what I said before about the what is the foundation of these religions and what we've all said. And it made me think about when I saw the movie, was it Harriet? Yeah. The, when I saw the movie Harriet, I think that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, lots of thoughts on that film, <laughs> but um, it really struck me in that moment. Cause I was really trying to understand my, uh, my very like fond upbringing as being like a, a Christian. Like I, I didn't have, I don't have, there are many, horror stories and they're all valid and they're all true like of black people in the church and like all the crazy things in the present and historically right but I didn't I never had those experiences so I was always trying to like really I knew something was off but I could never you know it took me years to really unravel all the things because I didn't have the white savior I didn't have a lot of these things that a lot of people do have to that extent right I'm sure they did exist more subconsciously potentially right but when I watched that film and I listened to them sing that Negro spiritual, let my people go. And, um, they, uh, I think Harry, you know, they call Harriet Tubman Moses. They, you know, said she was like Moses, you know, freeing the people. But the song literally says like, tell, like, was it tell Pharaoh to let my people go? And it, when I heard them sing it, it clicked like Pharaoh is your people. <laughs> like As black people, we're singing a song that is making our, you know, African ancestors who were living in Kemet, ancient Egypt, um, those who were pharaohs and others, it's making them out to be the culprits in this whole story, right? Like, it, we're literally singing a song that says, let my people go as if we're not African people. The other people are our people, you know? And it really clicked to me like, dang, <laughs> like, this is really off. This is really um, fundamentally off, like going back to these ancient times that we're talking about, not not even including the more recent, you know, 300, 400, 500 years, but going back to these ancient times. And I I use that example to that friend I mentioned before, and she still kept saying, oh, but these were all the same people. And I was like trying to explain to her, no, they weren't. You know, that just like, you know, people, like you said, uh, Dr. Richardson, I mean, Professor Richardson, soon to be Dr. Richardson, right? These people in Europe weren't. So why do, do we think that just because they're proximal, um, that they're the same culturally? Um, so all of that was so powerful. Thank you all for sharing. And I wanted to, I know we only have a few minutes left, but I wanted to see if y'all have any kind of final thoughts about this whole topic especially how it relates to um, black people, you know, African people in the United States. Um, 
we talked a lot. We didn't talk about the details about the, you know, Arab slave trade in terms of, you know, everything that happened. But do know that it was brutal. Do know that it was involved a lot of the same characteristics that the European, um, you know, enslavement of African people involved. Right. You know, the 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 terroristic behavior, the rape, the violence, the the the, the cultural um, uh, the attempted. It wasn't a destruction, but the attempted cultural destruction of African people um, happened, right? Um, but I'm and I and I and I want to bring up this point really quickly about how and when I teach, a lot of times students say, "Well, there was already slavery in Africa when Europeans got there." I know y'all heard that, and I'm and I always I'm always I used to roll my eyes at it, but now I'm always kind of expecting it because I know people just can't deal with the truth, so they have to bring this little point in. And I, I want to push back on that because I think somebody mentioned it before. What was actually happening in Africa? Were these other African people enslaving other African people? Were these Arabized Africans enslaving African people, or were these or and or were these Arabic people enslaving people in Africa? So we can touch on that really quickly. Right. If one. I could start, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I was thinking about, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about um, um, a new Dr. Ade, but I'll say this one thing because I think I know what he, I, I think I know what he's going to say. But um, in terms of, actually, could you repeat the question, Lindsay? So just who, when people make the comment about, Oh, you know, like with the year, first of all, they try to justify what Europeans did by saying there was already slavery happening in Africa or enslavement of African people happening on the continent. And they'll say, oh, well, Europeans just were, you know, yeah. taking advantage of the system that they were already doing to themselves. Right. People say that. But I'm asking you, because to me, obviously, I hope people listening knows that, that that's completely like not true and it's irrelevant really to what what happened. But people who were these people enslaving African people on the continent of Africa? Were they other Africans? Were they Arabized Africans? Were they Arabs? Like what was actually happening? Were other African people enslaving each other? Can y'all speak to that? Well, what I would say, well, there's two parts to it is one, African social systems and European systems are different. So you can't compare them just like you don't compare cat food and dog food. And mm -hmm. you should take time learning those systems. That's the first thing, and not look, looking at those social systems on their own terms. That's sometimes, usually people who ask that question have no interest in doing so. Usually, they don't. That, so I, there's, there's that part. But the second part, though, if they're Arabized and Christianized Africans, well, who creates those type of African people? Arabs and Europeans. So mm -hmm. it still goes back to them systematically. And I think sometimes with our people, when we make those kind of arguments, again, it's the... Eurasian validation syndrome or white or Arab validation system, I mean syndrome, where we just don't want to say that they are the problem that's afflicting us. We, we have a hard time with that, mm -hmm. very hard time. So I think it's that um, thing. But I'm really curious to see what um, Dr. Ade says. <laughs> I think I don't. You know, I, uh, I tell people, you, you have to look at words. You have to look at their definition and the history of words. And like, so when you, when you talk about slavery, which it's etymology, it comes from the history, the lineage of it, it comes from the Slavs, right? Mm -hmm. This notion of a people who were forever in bondage, uh, which is what the Slavs were, interestingly 
um, up until two years before we gained our freedom, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> um, but so I, I tell people like this notion of a slave and to be uh, a, in chattel, if you've heard that term before, chattel enslavement, right? Which etymologically goes back to the word uh, cattle, which is like a cow, right? But also capital, because cows and 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 those types of animals were looked at as as capital, as, as something that you use as currency. So you were literally just property on the song, in, in the same sense as a, as a as a cow. You know, you were uh, capital, and and the first and as enslaved Africans in this country or in the United States, you were the first major capital here. But in saying that, you could then say, or in understanding that, I should say, you should then you can then say prior to European and Arab intervention in Africa, there was no slavery. What there was were systems of peonage and and systems where captives war and things of that nature, peonage being debt slavery, or uh, that's what, how you would define it in in Western terms. But you're you're in servitude, which is a more e uh, equitable term, under someone because you owe a debt, or you're a captive of war. But these are these are systems where you're not relegated to mere property. If you read Equiano. Um, um, Oluwadu, I know I probably butchered his name, but the story, his story, um, his the the so-called slave narrative, and he mentions earlier in his book that when he was captured in West Africa, he was still given full humanity, mm -hmm. with serving the family that he was serving, and the children in that family could not eat before he did because he was older than them right wow. so there was there was there it was very different from this notion of slavery in the united states this was not uh the same thing these were not the same ideologies and so that falls under what i call uh the eurocentric masquerade mm -hmm. to to apply Western ideas and Eurocentric notions as the standard. Oh, so it was slavery in America. This is exactly what this was in Africa. And it wasn't. Right. Right. And in terms of uh uh you know Islam, the in 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 systems of enslavement in in West Africa, a lot of people point towards uh the Sokoto Caliphate, which was was it was an Islamic mm -hmm. uh, religiously controlled organization that was going on that enslaved over 2 million Africans who were not Muslim, right? right. And some who were. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> it's a whole other thing. Um, and then if you look at uh, Tipu Tip in East Africa, he was Muslim. He was, he was half Muslim, right? Um, but because he looked phenotypically African, some some historians of Africa would try to claim him as an African person. He didn't think of himself as African. You know, these were not these were foreign systems because servitude in Africa, 
served certain community purposes. It wasn't systems that were uh, there to upheld uh, slaveocracies. They were not there to uphold slaveocracies. Wow, thank you for that. Uh, Professor Richardson, did you have anything to add? Yeah, so so I have a quick thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I messed up by letting uh, Professor Samuels and Doctor go before <laughs> me because they took all my talking points. But when you when you look at the systems of bondage or peonage, um, as they refer to it as, that existed in Africa, those systems are not that different. They're more similar, I should say, to systems like serfdom or peasantry than they are to to systems of European or Arabic enslavement. Meaning that if we're to define Africa as having systems of slavery, that means that you would have to, by that same definition, say that every single European person who wasn't part of the noble class Uh in medieval Europe were slaves. Right. And in fact, many of those people, the serfs, had less rights than African people who were quote unquote enslaved. So, so like a day saying, we need to look at the terms, right? Because uh, terms come with a lot of baggage, but mm-hmm. look at the terms, what do they mean? And then look at what's actually going on. And you're going to see many, many discrepancies. And let me ask this, adding on to that, because it's all great. What is the ancient comedic word for slavery? doesn't exist exactly (laughs) does not exist can't compute (laughs) no in all seriousness it doesn't exist but that gets to i think what you know um professor richardson was saying and i think that's why i say when people who usually ask this question it's an it's a argument if you can call it that an argument in bad faith well, it's a gaslighting type. It's always, it's always, you know, it generally is. I, I rarely hear a person who's seriously interested in developing their sense of self ask that question. You see what I mean? So I, I, I usually assume it's a bad faith question, but I do think what's important is to highlight the African people who collaborated with oppressors. They're collaborators, but you can't judge a whole society based on those who collaborate with the oppressor because ultimately who benefits from these actions is the oppressor groups the arabs and europeans exactly benefit from it so i always look at a problem from who benefits so if someone throws a rock at you and they hit you with the rock successfully right are you gonna look at the rock on the floor and you know go attack the rock and say this rock is this no Mm. a, a conscious person is either going to run up to the person who threw the rock and attack them or take that same rock and chuck it back after them. Mm. Right. But what we do, but that's what I mean about the white validation syndrome, right? When we don't want to hear that they are the problem, we try to find arguments to, to not accept that white people are the problem. We have a very, very, very hard time with that. And I think that's where that argument comes out of. Yes, that's my absolutely. suspicion. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And, and, and that's such a great way to look at it, a great metaphor, because, you know, we do do that. You know, it, it, get what is the root? <laughs> what does it boil down to? 
So, and and one little quick point before we wrap up, because I I mean we can go on all day with this. Um, it it it, and I think I lost my point. What was my point? Oh, yep. and also my little point that'll be really quick. That, that's a sign we need to wrap up. <laughs> is that um, you know, we we don't even talk about all of the people who do fight back against it in Africa, right? Who say that this is not right? You know, who who start whole wars against these sometimes Arab people or Europeans, but also even African people who are collaborating with them um, to stop them from doing these types of things. So that's just a, a little tidbit for, for further research. But I want to, I want to thank you all so much. This was so amazingly informative and fruitful. And I, and I hope that our listeners learned a lot because it's something that we need to talk about more and more and more um, to really understand the full complexity of what's happened in this world, um, and what and 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 our and how it's impacted um, us historically and in the present. So I want to take a moment, and of course, thank you again. But I want to take a moment to ask you all to share any events or activities you have coming up, or how our listeners can connect with you. And we can start with, um, we'll go in alphabetical order, Dr. Ade. Uh, I actually cannot think of any events necessarily right now, but you can connect with me on theafricologist.com or uh, on Facebook uh, via the Africologist page, which is um, facebook.com slash theafricologist. Uh, Twitter, Africologist spelt with a K instead of a C. Uh, and you know, I, I can, we can connect that way, but, uh, other than that, no, no current events, um, that are coming up. Okay. Thank you so much. So the Africologist there, and then let me move on to do, uh, professor soon to be Dr. Richardson. I'm already manifesting it for you. <laughs> oh, appreciate it. Um, you know, your listeners can contact me at academia.edu. You can, you know, type in my name and I'll come up. You can send me a message there. You can check out uh, some of the projects I've worked on. Uh, I'm working on a, a few more projects. You know, I have a, a couple pu publications, you know, being considered, you know, or, you know, in the process of being published. Um, and I'm also working on a, an oral history project for the Department of Africology um, here at Temple University. Um, but in terms of events, you know, um, there's always something going on, you know, Kwanzaa is coming down, down the road. So we'll take a look at what Kwanzaa is going to be looking at. Um, and, you know, right now my primary focus is to, you know, finish this dissertation. So, yes. you know, that's, that's what's coming up. I say that's coming. It's coming. I feel it soon, soon, soon. Thank you so much. And then last, but certainly not least, um, our Dr. Samuels. Hello, everybody. Um, so I, you can contact me on Academia Edu as well at Tristan Samuels. If you type it in, I should come up, and you'll see my works there. Um, most of my research, um, you know, you know, Lindsay said what I do at, at the top of the hour, but most of what I do, I'm dealing with right now, is getting um, literature from Kemet, um, translating it in languages of the diaspora. Mm. 
right, either whether it be translation or grammatical analysis. And, and the purpose of my research is generally to show for African people in the diaspora that we are African, not African-ish or Blackish like that silly show, but we are <laughs> African people, right? And I think that you see this in language very, but you'll definitely see that with, with some of my, my work. Some, some of them are drafts, um, presentations and, and publications. And then I have my dissertation, which is the first African text translated in a language of the diaspora. Wow. Amazing. Wow. Y'all are, y'all are so amazing. And I'm not just saying that cause y'all are guests, but thank you all so much. The, the wealth of knowledge that you each possess and then coming together collectively is so phenomenal. And thank you for being scholar activists, you know, taking this information and sharing it. There's so many people out here who are walking around as basically libraries, moving libraries, but who don't want to share what they know, right? So thank you so much for for enlightening us and for sharing what you know. Um, And thanks again for everybody for listening. Um, Be sure to connect with Gumbo the Podcast at tinyurl.com slash Gumbo the Podcast. And our IG is Gumbo the Podcast. And I hope you have enjoyed your bowl. See me, Daddy.